Welcome to Alive and Kick In, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than knowing every word to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme tune. Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned up, so okay, I'll stop, I'll stop. You should know the John Barnes rap better anyway. You got to hold it in, but do it at the right time. Okay, I'll stop. No more singing, because this is Alive and Kick In, the 90s football podcast. And my name is Ash Rose, your host and guide through everything 1990s when football was involved. How are you doing? Thank you, as always, for hitting the download button on this your nostalgia trip through the world of football in the 1990s. Um, how are you doing since last month? Um, we had a great show last month where uh, we spoke to Ron Atkinson. Big Ron, of course, yep. Big name from the 90s. And he really was. I think I said that on the show uh, last month. I said that uh, just hearing his voice made me feel nostalgic because he's such a big character from that decade, uh, whatever, being managing or being a pundit, of course. And he had some great stories to tell from his time at Aston Villa, how he still held it in such high regard at Sheffield Wednesday, that famous day in for Nottingham Forest where he sat in the wrong dugout, and he'd even time to talk about his brilliant stint at Harchester United. Yes, Dream Team's own first manager, if I remember rightly, uh, from Sky One Show. He talked to us about that, and he remembered the name Fletch. Good old Fletch. Hashtag bring back Dream Team. Anyone from Sky who's listening, and I'm sure they are, bring back Dream Team. Or at least put them on DVD. We all want it. We love Dream Team. Um, and so did Big Ron. So thank you very much. Check out his new book. It's called The Manager. It's a great thing to put on your Christmas list um, where he reflects on both his managerial career and his thoughts on how it's changed in the current game. Uh, that book is out now. Also on the show, last time out, uh, I kind of went, it was kind of just me, um, so sorry if I droned on too much uh, throughout the podcast, uh, I hope you didn't get too bored of my voice, but I just wanted to go through a, a few things that we didn't quite cover on certain pods, so kind of little 90s tidbits and mementos that uh, that kind of connected to some of the episodes we just didn't get around to talking about, so I hope you indulged me on that one and the few things we went through. Um, I did call it a mini episode, but I think it went on longer than some of our actual proper episodes, so hope you enjoyed that and some of the things that we talked about on there. hope they sparked a nostalgic memory or two. Um, it was good to get some of those things out, like Football Magic, that's one that I talked about on the on the show last time out, um, a collection that, until I was talking about it then, I, no one I'd ever met had remember it. In fact, I actually thought... It had just become made up by this little news agent that uh, I used to get it from in Swingate Lane in Plumstead. If anyone's listening from that area, it was called Frank's. It's not there anymore. Bless his soul. He used to do paper round for him as well. I say bless his soul. He was a bit of a cranky old man, actually. He wasn't Bert, who was the legend of Plumstead um, in news agents. Uh, again, sadly, no longer with us. But I thought that news agent actually made up football magic because I didn't meet anyone who ever collected it. But since putting it on Twitter around last time's show, um, a few people do remember it as well. So it's made me feel a little bit more sane that I didn't just create this magical, no pun intended, footballer collection that you do remember it. And some of the other things uh, we talked about as well on that show, um, I think I put on Twitter, the Football Nuts, for instance. Um, maybe they didn't go quite as nostalgic memories as some others I talked about, but I've still got some sitting on my shelf, actually, some QPR ones. They're very random piece of tat from the 1990s and I think I'll do another one of those shows at some point uh, during the season as well and this because there's still a few things I didn't quite get to um, that we can talk about um, jibber jabbers remember jibber jabber dolls yes there was a football one as well so things like that maybe we'll do another show um, 
somewhere uh, in the, in 2017, of course, because that is just around the corner. For those who did listen last time out, um, I did mention that we were going to do a kit podcast. It's been done. It's recorded. So that is ready to go. Um, I'm not going to use that this time out, though. Um Mainly because uh, we've got a different flavour to the show and it centres around Christmas slightly as well, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, but I did speak to the great John Devlin for the Kit Podcast and we went for our top five kits of the 90s. So I'll probably drop that just this side of Christmas so as a little extra Christmas present for you guys. And then in 2017, the aim is to get back to normal service and get this to at least on a week-to-week or bi-weekly uh, show sort of schedule instead of the kind of sort of month to month we'll be doing at the moment just trying to organize things um this end but hopefully that is the plan so you'll have more 90s goodness on a week-to-week basis as well which is what we always like because there's still all plenty more to talk about i've been speaking to some friends of the show just this week um you all know their voices as well um joel young and uh someone who's going to be on the show in just a second actually we were speaking at an event um which was in my my double life, I suppose, for anyone who's into their wrestling. I'm part of the Gorilla Position Talk Sport uh, podcast, where we, uh, which is one of the most popular podcasts in the country. And we did a live event this week, uh, the O2, which was fantastic. And uh, some of the guys came along and we talked 90s football, 90s wrestling. And we've got some irons in the fire that we're going to talk about next year for this podcast. So keep listening and keep Twitter, Twittering, keep on the Twitter, AK90s and Facebook, AK90s, for more and more updates on that. Onto today's show, though, and as it's Christmas, yep, you're going to get the cheap plugs now. Um, I'm just, if you're still looking for those perfect gifts for your 19s loving self, or friends, or mum and dad, or brothers, or anyone you know who wants a bit of 90s this Christmas, then firstly, of course, you can buy the book that preceded and spawned this very podcast, Alive and Kicking, The Ultimate Guide to 90s Nostalgia, available to all good bookstores now and on Amazon. Um, it was a book I did um, preceding this podcast uh, a couple of years ago. Obviously, it's not out of date. It's about the 90s, so it's a perfect coffee table book. I'm not going to deny it's not the most analytical look at how football in the 90s changed it forever. It's definitely, like this podcast, just celebrating the nostalgia element of it. So as we've done last season, you know, the sections that run through on the pitch, off the pits, kits, stickers, TV, adverts, video games, players, tournaments. It's all covered in one book. Um, the link's on the Twitter feed, but I'm sure I'll put it up a couple more times for Christmas if you're looking for that last minute gift. And which brings me to today's guest as well, who also has a book out completely, well, not completely different, but a different style book to my own. Um, it is centered around football in the 90s, but it's a novel, which uh, for me, I think is very exciting because it's not been done before. Uh, having read it already, I can tell you it's absolutely fantastic. The book's called Cashing In. And it's by Sid Lambert, who you may have seen pop up on our Twitter feed a couple of times as well, because um, he is on Twitter as well and he loves to post a few 90s-esque uh, pictures and videos, just like we do. So he's very much in keeping with what we do on here. Um, the book, I'll let uh, Sid himself tell you more about the book, but uh, basically it centres around uh, a young footballer called Ray Cash and his journey through the world of 1990s football and the troughs and tribulations, the highs and lows that he has to go through, all kind of, he's fictional, but the world around him is all the things that you'll recognise from that decade and the things we've talked about in that show. So I'll let uh, Sid in just a second uh, talk to you about that. We also have a great guest on the show this week, um, centred around that young footballer's theme, and that is Sonny Pike who may not be a name you instantly remember, but back in the 90s, he was seen as 
possibly the next big thing as he was signed by a top European club when he was just eight years old and the media went mental for him. Didn't quite work out, which we'll learn from Sonny himself, but uh, we've got that on the show. And the theme we're going for this week, because it's centred around uh, Sid's book and the young footballer, um, well, I'll explain in more detail when we bring Sid in in just a minute, we would be looking at players in the 90s that didn't quite make it and doing our own 11s of those players. So your mind's probably already bubbling to the names that have come up, but we've tried to be... Uh, well, me and, me and Sid did, don't, don't know our 11s, each of us, so we possibly... There's a warning, we may pick the same players, but there's enough out there, and I think it's between us we've uh, got our favourites. So those 11s we're going to go through in just a minute when we bring Sid in. Uh, potential 11s? I don't know, we'll find a cool name for it. Um, before we do, um, i just got to get the housekeeping out of the way. As I said uh, earlier, if you want to get involved and join the conversation, I think that's the term social media people tell us now, uh, you can do follow us on Twitter at K9, AK90s. Uh, hashtag Keep It 90s, that is the hashtag I always use. So um, please use that as well if you ever want to get involved. Uh, we're on Facebook as well at the same address. Um, you can find the podcast on all your favourite podcast platforms, iTunes, SoundCloud. Please download every week. Um, if you are on iTunes, subscribe because it helps us so much. And if you're feeling particularly festive in this holiday season, I bloody love Christmas. Uh, give us a five-star rating and review because that would help us tremendously at the end of 2016. And give us a bit of a boost as we go into the new year and try and really get this podcast going again. Um, I think last year it was fantastic. Uh, the start of 2016-17, it's, uh, it's been a bit, you know, up in the air just in terms of organising guests and uh, my own. There's sort of balls I'm juggling in the air and stuff, but I want to keep it going. I want you guys to, to enjoy it. I want it to be the best possible look back on the 90s. And I know that there's the, the, the audience out there. You can see that from all you guys that enjoy it and miss it when it's gone. So, yeah, that's all. Get involved and try and make 2017 a fantastic year for AK90s. Okay, then let's bring in my guest. He is the author of a brand new football book based in the 90s. It's a novel set around 1990s football right up our street. I've read it. It's absolutely brilliant. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Sid Lambert. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing very well, mate. It's nice to be back. It's good to hear your voice. Now, uh, I've done a little bit of on the book and the intro, but give us some more kind of go on. Sell the blurb before Christmas. Uh, tell us about cashing in. Well, yeah, thanks. Uh, a shameless plug coming up. I mean, cashing in is basically, it's a trip down memory lane, really, for all of us who remember the 90s with fondness. Um, packed with nostalgia and anecdotes about the dawn of the Premier League. Um, probably the most exciting time in football history for us. And it's a chance to remember some of the great and not so great players from the time. Uh, but it's not a trivia book, Ash. Like you say, it's a novel. And at the heart of the story is a very human story. It's about a gifted young footballer called Ray Cash struggling to find his identity in the world of football and it explores a theme that I think all of us can relate to it's what if you feel your life is going down a path you don't want it to mm. all of us have done jobs we hated what if the one thing you happen to be really good at is something you hate doing and you'd give anything to start all over again that's the Ray Cash story and it happens to take place in the most exciting era in football history Yes, of course, which we celebrate. I mean, what inspired you to write this, Sid? I mean, it's something very different. Um, it's in terms of football novels, because over the years, you know, Fever Pitch is obviously a fantastic book, but it's obviously autobiographical to a certain extent. So there hasn't really been a great football novel. So what inspired you to, to, to write such a thing? Well, you've left out Steve Bruce's series of novels, um, <laughs> quite rightly so. Um, I've been, I've been, <laughs> been reacquainting myself with those lately, and they're not going to trouble anyone. Yeah, no, yeah. Best they're not fondly list. remembered, yeah. 
No. Um, I think basically I, I really, I mean, it's been meticulously researched. I mean, the reason I'm on shows like this and I like it is because I just love that era so much. It was yeah. just such, so brilliant. Football was changing at a rapid pace and I had so much knowledge about it. But then I really missed things like Dream Team. Oh. Um, I thought I thought Dream Team was just left such a void, really, in our sort of football vernacular. This brilliant storytelling in a real life scenario. You know, um, it wasn't like Melchester Rovers in, you know, and Forward Town at Roy the Rovers. It was a brilliant piece of storytelling set in real life scenarios with real life anecdotes and players. And that's what I wanted to do, really. But I wanted to do it differently because I wanted to also use a little bit of personal experience because I was lucky enough to grow up around one or two very, very good footballers mm. um, back in the early 90s, people who went on to become professionals and some who just fell away from the game. And the one thing that always struck me about it was that, yes, there are players that reach the top and love the life, but there are a lot of players out there for whom football rapidly became just a job, just a profession, just a paycheck. And um, I also wanted to explore the idea of about how parental influence can shape you as well, because we've all done things to sort of try and delight our parents. But I came across a lot of scenarios and I've read about a lot of scenarios where parental influence, particularly in football, can only add pressure. And I expect that's something we'll talk about today is when young players feel the pressure of expectation and how they struggle to kind of fulfill that. So I wanted to explore these themes in a different way. And I wanted to just tell a great story the way the likes of Dream Team did. Yeah, oh, Dream Team. No, it, it, and you do do that, Ralph. I'm, I'm not kind of you know, blowing up, smoke up you or anything. I've read the book. It's a fantastic read. You really sort of picture and capture the, the essence of the 1990s as well as the themes. And I think fans who are non-football fans well can appreciate that. And I know that's what something that you try to put in there as well. Fans that who are probably not into the, even the era of football, but also just like reading a decent story. Would that be true? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been I've, one thing I've got to say, Ash, is I've really been blown away by the response we've had so far. Uh, the reviews have been amazing. Uh, one fella called it the best uh, book he'd read on the bog in ages, which was uh, very kind of him. Um, but yeah, it's definitely there because there's a human story at heart. You don't have to be an avid follower of football in, in the 90s. Um, there's something there for everyone, I think. But the 90s touch, I think, is just something that particularly followers of your podcast will really, really appreciate. Yeah, and I will. So that book is out now. I will tell you where you can find it uh, at the end of the show. But yeah, do look out for that on the Christmas list. As I mentioned in the intro, you need that and you need the Live and Kicking Ultimate Guide to 90s Football Nostalgia on your Christmas list. There you go. There is all your 90s goodness rolled into one. Um, but because Sid is on the show, we thought we'd do uh, something a little bit different for today's show. Um, as the book is based on Ray Cash, a young footballer in the 90s. That much is, would you say, much is expected of him at the start of the book? Yeah, absolutely. He's a he's a player who who um, has excelled at school at county level. He's made it to the professional ranks, uh, and he's starting now to deal with that expectation. So we thought we'd look back at some players uh, from the '90s who had that kind of expectation on them. That kind of players you look back and gone, "Wow, they they could have been something. They really could." And for whatever reasons, whether it be lack of opportunities, maybe not fulfilling potential, injury, or even off-field problems, didn't quite work out. And instead of just kind of putting them all together and talking about them, um, because we did something quite similar last season um, with regulars Paddy and uh, Rob, where we talked about young players, me and Sid have both put together an 11 
of these players. So classic 11 style. I know combined 11s is much very much in thing at the moment if, before every weekend match. does my nutting, to be honest. Um, so we thought we'd come up with our own 11. We haven't seen each other's 11 either, so it'd be quite amusing to see if we've uh, picked the same players. I know a few of you on Twitter mentioned some names, and I've, we have have included them on mine. I'm sure uh, Sid has as well. Um, so no better place to start than... I found this quite difficult, actually, though, but let's go with you first, Sid. Who have you picked in goal for your... Promising potential of the 90s 11. Is that a too big a mouthful for an 11? <laughs> well, it, to be honest, there was only one name that really came to mind for me um, because he was a superstar really in the late 90s and he was pretty much a given to be the next David Seaman. Uh, so I've gone for Richard Wright. Yeah, yeah he was um, the obvious candidate, wasn't he? Yeah, Yeah. Have, have you gone for him as well? Uh, well, he was my main one, but I've got a couple others that are backups. So go on, go ahead with Richard Wright. Well, just because when you look at the statistics, the guy was a first-team regular at 18 years old at Ipswich. He did four seasons there, played about 250 games. Um, he was basically the next big thing in English football. And, you know, Arsene Wenger hand-picked him, cherry-picked him as the man to replace David Seaman. And we expected 10... 10, 12 years of England, England's number one being Richard Wright. Um, and unfortunately, that increased scrutiny and pressure didn't really benefit him. And um, the amazing thing I, I looked at when I saw his stats was that he, got, he played 250 games in the first five years of his career. And in the next 15 years, he only averaged 10 a season. And that seems just a, such a, a terrible waste of talent to me. Well, he, he's still playing is the scary thing because he's is he still on, I believe, his Manchester City's books, isn't he? Yeah, I think he's about 25th choice goalkeeper. Yeah, so, but he's you been know. there for a while and and won league titles. I know it works slightly different in the modern era where you don't have to play 15 games and I think the club decides who gets the medal. So I don't know if he's got Premier League medals, but the fact that he's still going is quite remarkable. But I, like you, when, when I was thinking of eleven, he was the first name that came came to my head. He was, I mean, he, that Ipswich team had some talented youngsters in it. We think Kieran Dyer and James Scowcroft as well. But he was the one, as you say, he was sort of earmarked as the next big goalkeeper. And it just that move to Arsenal, it just kind of completely, I don't think he was ready for the pressure of such a maybe big club, but it completely curtailed his career, didn't it? Yeah, they said, you see this with a lot of young goalkeepers, don't they? They get pushed that little bit too early. And I think 23, 22 is still an extraordinarily young age for a goalkeeper. I think goalies tend to mature a little bit later into their 20s and early 30s. And I, I mean, you only have to look. Do you remember his England debut? He conceded, um, I think we were against Malta, and he conceded two penalties. Uh, Kevin Keegan put him between the sticks. And that, that kind of sums up Richard Wright in those, in those big, big moments with that expectation on him. He just never quite delivered. Yeah, it, big shame for him. The only other two names that I have mentioned, and they weren't in the league of Richard Wright, but there were a couple of names that were just bubbling under. And they, they were in the under-21 squads a lot. Probably not ever think that would go on to be England number ones, but probably decent goalkeepers. And they didn't quite live up to complete. was Steve Simonson, uh, who played for Everton. Um, I think he went to Stoke as well. And Paul Gerrard, he was one that was around a lot at the time. So, yeah, those sort of those two kind of understudies, I suppose, to Richard Wright. But I think, yeah, when we're talking goalkeepers, I think he was the easiest option for that. Um, let's move on to defence then. I mean, I'm playing 4-4-2. What, what are you playing, uh, Sid? Yeah, 4-4-2. 4-4-2, going cl- 90s classic. Um, right back, I'll go first with this one. Um, it's one I think may have been mentioned. I think, actually, no, when we were talking about the idea, I think you mentioned it, Sid. Um, I th- and for me, I mean, Gary Neville was such a, you know, he was the man with that right back spot um, for England uh, throughout the uh, most of the 90s. And he was never really properly challenged. But the guy that could have done 
was Rob Jones. Um, for me, Rob Jones of Liverpool. Um, I was I was actually there his England debut. I think it was it's yeah France uh, when Alan Shearer also made his England debut. And at that point, he all fitted in automatically for England. And you thought, okay, we found our right back for years to come. Because I think at that point, Paul Parker was had was kind of out of the scene, having been there at Talia ninety. There wasn't really another one. Lee Dixon never really kind of made that spot his own. So Rob Jones really looked like he was going to be. Uh, well, the, the sort of man that, to be there for a long time just before Gary Neville broke through, both for club and country. Uh, then injury struck, unfortunately, um, and he never really recovered from that injury and never really became the sort of the, the defender that we thought we, he we would become. Did you, what do you have as your fallback? Yeah, I, I was going to go for Rob Jones, and then um, I thought I'd just go slightly different. Um, I went for a guy who had, a, in fact, a very similar story to Rob Jones, uh, and his name was Gary Charles. Uh, of course. Um, uh, Nottingham Forest. Um, and it was just, I was looking back at that Forest team. It was kind of just in Clough's twilight years, and I think um, Gary Charles was just, uh, Brian Clough used to call him the Brazilian because of his speed, and he was phenomenally quick. And I think when you compared him to the right backs that England had at the time, uh, you know, Earl Barrett, uh, not great, um, <laughs> Paul Parker, Lee Dixon. I mean, Dixon never went over the halfway line. I mean, he's pro- you know his priority on a football pitch was to catch you offside. I thought Gary Charles and Rob Jones, they were sort of the first of that ilk of fullbacks who would just bomb forward and offer you something offensively as well so I went for Gary Charles because he uh, he played for England under 21 he looked like he might be something um, something of an England regular and then pretty much just like Rob Jones he, he got injured he made he unfortunately made a couple of bad transfers and it all just went you know rather downhill from there and his career petered out yeah and, he, and he's suffered quite badly didn't he if I remember once he retired had a real bad time of it with uh, was it drink and I don't know I you know allegedly of course but they he did, no he... no no you're right he was um, unfortunately he was he he did a little stretch in prison in yeah. about uh, about ten or twelve years ago but um, thankfully he... he's, he's kind of turned it around yeah. since then I am I think wrong in thinking was he found in his car once is that the, is that he... Gary Charles it was Gary Charles yeah, yeah I, I think I think he had two or three incidents on the same day. Um, and I think that was sort of when he hit rock bottom. Mm. But credit to him, he seems to have bounced back. And I think I think he's working at something like the University of Nottingham no, now. That's good. Good for him. Because so, yeah, again... there, there's a little bit of a brighter sort of end to that yeah. story. Yeah. No. Yeah. A good good choice. I remember him wearing that classic Nottingham Forest kit, which I, I talked about with John Devlin on a future podcast. So we'll talk about that in, in a couple of weeks. Um, left back for you. Uh, someone I played with, Ash, uh-huh. uh, many, many years ago for Castle Colts under-12s oh, in Maidstone, yeah. not far from where you currently reside. I'm currently sitting uh, right now, not far from it, yeah. Yep. Yeah, uh, this guy was the left winger in our age group below. So every year we used to play the kids below us and the kids above us. And every year I was a sort of jobbing right back. I was petrified against of playing against this lad. And it was John Harley. Uh, he was unbelievable even at that age he was he could dance around the whole team he was so quick he had so much skill um i remember him leaving our school and going to lillishaw uh to to um complete a stay there i think he i think he did two years at lillishaw and then he went to chelsea and the next time i saw him he was on match of the day scoring against leeds united <laughs> amazing amazing yeah yeah he's a name you know what he's no i forgot he's always been there and abouts um, and again, he was someone that I thought when he broke through, 
could really push. I mean, England's had some great left backs both in that era, then pushing forward. But he was he had that kind of going up and down the wing, the kind of future that we'd see from fullbacks. He was really one of those that would bomb up and down, wouldn't he? Yeah, but do uh, you know what John's problem was? Um, I said he used to play when he was 11 years old. Um, he never grew. He was the size yeah. of a gnome. And I think that he was that sort of player that every single coach looked at and thought, yeah, he's great, brilliant skill, tremendous pace, very intelligent player, but he's too small. And I think a succession of managers just held him against, you know, sorry, held it against him. I mean, he still had a good career, John. I mean, he played at a lot of clubs and he's pretty much fondly remembered wherever he went. But I always thought that he should have been given more of a chance at the top level. Yeah, um, I've gone for a Chelsea one myself as well, who's someone who broke in just before John, I think, and that was Danny Granville. Um, he signed for Chelsea in 1997 um, from Cambridge United, seen as one of the, a good youngster, not nowadays with Chelsea, just sort of put them all in and send them out on loan. They were someone they really thought would be pushing to the first team. Um, few under-21 performances, again, another one who liked to bomb up and down the left wing, but I think he just got um, lost in the shuffle in the end. I think they bought too many left-backs. Obviously, Graham Lasso was already there. Then John Harley broke through. Um, he did play in the 1998 um, Cup Winners' Cup win over Stuttgart um, and scored, actually, during that campaign, but never really kicked on after that. And then he went to Leeds, where it never really worked out. And then a few spells at City and Norwich and ended up at Palace in sort of the next decade. But again, another decent Chelsea left-back that I thought more of. I know Paddy, who's a friend of the show, thought quite highly of him as well. So Danny Granville was mine. Um, Brian Small was another option I came up with, uh, who played uh, for Aston Villa in the 90s. But yeah, so I've gone for Danny Granville. Let's lump our centre-backs together. You said before, Pod, you've gone for a sweeper. That's very old school, uh, Sid. So who are your two, including your sweeper? Right, so I'll start with my centre-back, just my my standard stopper here. And I've gone for a championship manager legend. Uh, <laughs> because if you had Dean Blackwell oh. on championship manager three, it was essentially like having a force field around your six-yard box. Um, he, was, he must be one of the greatest championship manager players of all time. Defender-wise, for sure, yeah. Yeah, defender-wise, incredibly. Uh, who was so utterly ordinary in real life. Um, because you think Championship Manager really prides itself on its research and its statistics. Just part of you sort of scratches your head and think, well, who was it in 1998 that decided Dean Blackwell was possibly one of the greatest defenders on planet yeah. Earth? <laughs> because there, there really was no evidence to support that. So I, I, I got a few England under-21 caps, and I think he played about 300 games for Wimbledon. But, yeah, I, I've gone for Dean Blackwell. I don't, yeah. I don't know... Where where that sort of came from, um, he he was always talked about. I remember in the mid nineties, maybe as being a player who Tottenham might sign or, you know, that that might take that step up. But he never really did, and he just became a bit of a mainstay, didn't he? Yeah, I put a picture up him on Twitter actually a couple of weeks ago in an England shirt and asked, um, "Who is this?" And I don't think one person got it right. It must have been when he was playing for the under twenty ones. But yeah, he was someone. You know, Wimbledon had kind of a few in the 90s. You know, you think Warren Barton, um, Chris uh, Chris Perry. They had a you know, sort of people that would come through and move on to have, you know, semi-decent careers. That's, you know, no disrespect to Wimbledon, but a bigger clubs, John Scales. Um, but no, he was never one that never really moved on and never really kicked on, was he? So, no, good choice. Uh, he was a name that, that come to me. So you, And your sweeper then, uh, Sid? Right. 
Right, here we go. This Now, the reason he's sweeper is because I don't think anyone ever agreed what his position was. And he ended up here at the sort of back end of his career. I've gone for the Bart man, Chris Bart Williams. <laughs> um, uh, and there's, uh, I just want to say one thing about Chris Bart Williams, which is that his attempt to grow a goatee in the mid-90s was an absolute abomination. <laughs> it really was absolutely awful. He should have had a lifetime ban. It was like this... I don't know if you remember it, actually. I, now it you like said this, it, yeah. It was like this small, apologetic weed on yeah. the end of his chin. It was... I mean, you have to remember... You have to put this into context. Gianluca Viali had come over from um, Italy and signed for Chelsea. And his goatee looked like the Chelsea groundsman spent his weekends on it. It oh, was perfect. magnificent. Yeah. Oh, it was just a work of art. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, Viali's a work of art himself, but his goatee it was, was perfect, as you say. It was magnificent. And then if you didn't like that and you wanted the full beard, then you looked at people like Brian Kilcline. who oh. looked like, you know, looked like a looked like a wild man who'd been yeah. living in the woods for two decades. He would look out place and in I, Game of Thrones now, would he? <laughs> Indeed, absolutely. Or Alexi Lalas. I mean, tremendous of examples of facial hair, but Chris Bart Williams was a disgrace. But aside from that, he was a very tidy footballer. Um, I remember when he moved to Sheffield Wednesday, they did a front page special on him. On match, or I think it was Match Magazine. Oh, classic! And they said, and they said, meet the Bartman, England's next Gaza. <laughs> and that, and that never really happened, did it? No, I mean, he, really he was, he, he he sort of stayed with Wednesday for a few years, and he, I remember he moved to Forest. And there's a, if you can look on YouTube, there's a couple of brilliant goals he scored for Forest. But then he just started drifting further and further back, and he ended up playing centre half. Uh, and there was a lot of promise. He got he's like a bit like John Harley, really. He got 500 appearances as a pro, so he's he's earned plenty of money. But he wasn't quite England's next Gaza. No, and he was someone that just kind of was just bumbled around the Premier League. He was always there in the 90s. He never seemed to go away. Um, decent Premier League midfielder in the end. As you said, he went to the back. I'm surprised he never got capped by Graham Taylor. He seems someone that would be perfect. <laughs> fodder for Graham Taylor to give an England cap to but sadly no Bart Williams was was one my list as well I had him in, as an maybe as an auto for my midfield but yeah good sweeper um for my center backs I, I found center backs quite hard actually there wasn't really many I think Dean Blackwell was a great shout um the two I've gone for I mean I've pushed Paul Lake in, into defense I know he could oh, play I thought about doing that yeah, yeah he could I play thought about that. you know yeah. Paul Lake's quite a famous story where uh, he was seen as at City as regarded as very much the next big thing. Um, more in the late 80s, it has to be said, I do admit, but he did play in the Premier League, then had two horrible, horrible injuries, uh, which back then, you know, the sort of medical scarf you have now and the sort of cruciate limit that's happening, they kind of get fixed. And, you know, you're out for a while, but you kind of re- recover. He never did. And, and obviously his demons got the better of him in later life as well. I'm, I'm, again, I'm glad he's come through the other end. He was on uh, Sky's Fantasy Show the other week and in great style. So yeah, Paul Lake I've gone for. Um, and the other t- the other centre-back spot, I'm kind of toying between two names who, young players who broke through, played quite a lot of Premier League games. I don't, don't get me wrong, I don't think they were going to be the next Des Walker or anything like that, but they were regarded quite highly, played for the England under-21s. So I, it take your pick between either Stuart Nethercott from Tottenham or Oof. Ricardo Skimmaker who uh, played for Villa and later Leicester as well. So, again, like I said, I think there were two people who thought, oh, they're a decent player, maybe they'll come something. Maybe not, you know, when, when we'll talk later, when we go further down the field of our 11 players who you think would become proper world-class or the next Gascoigne like Chris Bart-Williams. But two names that were relatively rated, do you think? 
Well, I mean, Ozzy Ardiles dropped Gary Mabbott for Stuart Nethercourt. There you go, didn't he? see, perfect. You know, he, he saw him as a ball-playing centre-half and he thought Gary Mabbott was too defensive. I mean, that's, that's when Ozzy was playing three at the back and five up front. So, I mean, perhaps not the best judge of a, a player's defensive qualities. So, I mean, there was, but there was a little bit behind uh, Stuart Nethercourt's reputation, even if he didn't quite fulfil it. No, and Skimmaker, I mean, somebody that... Again, he's one of those, oh, do you remember him players? But I think at the beginning, again, he was an under-21 captain for a while. Could have been, uh, could have had a better career maybe than he did have, but he still had a decent career. Let's move on to midfield then, uh, our four in midfield. Um, Sid, do you want to take, who's your midfield two? My midfield two, uh, so anchoring the midfield, um, two kind of very different stories. One ended by injury, another ended by some just incredibly poor personal decisions. So we'll go with injury first. I've gone for probably, I'd, I'd say, the archetypal dog of war. I've gone for Joe Parkinson. Oh, of course, yeah, Everton, yes. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, again, you've got to put it into context. At the time, in you know, 1995-96, Sky are pushing the Premier League as the place to be, the most exciting league in the world. We've got all these exotic foreign names you know, coming into the game. And Joe Royal turns up at Everton and decides, you know what, we're just going to destroy anything that moves, any kind of flair on a football pitch, we're going to destroy. And at the heart of that was Joe Parkinson. Um, he was part of that midfield three with uh, John Ebrell and Barry Horn. Oh, it sounds and, bad when um, sound like that now, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I thought Joe was probably the, the better of yeah, you know, awesome. all three because I think he had a little bit more ability to... He could destroy, but then he could just get a counter-attack going. You know, this is sort of five, six years before Cla- Claude McAuley made that a profession. But, um, of course, he he was still hugely uh, appreciated at Everton, and then injuries just absolutely decimated his career. But they still gave him a testimonial, which was nice. Yeah, no, good choice. And alongside John Ebrell? Uh, Sorry, Joe Parkinson, I, you went for. Yep, go on. Yeah, not John Ebrell. No, uh, alongside uh, Joe Parkinson, I've gone for... Possibly the uh, the craziest player in Premier League history, you know, when you read about what he's done since, Sasha Churchic. <laughs> Star of the uh, Serbian Big Brother, if I remember rightly. He was indeed. And I think he made a brief foray into the adult entertainment industry <laughs> as not, well, yeah, according to Wikipedia. No, no. Uh, but when he was at Bolton, I remember he made his debut on a Monday night against Arsenal. Uh, and Bolton were a terrible, terrible team. They're absolutely awful, relegation favourites. And he was the best player on the pitch by a mile. I think they beat Arsenal 1-0. Uh, and he just had everything. He could turn, he could tackle, he could he could um, dribble, he could finish. He looked like he was going to be an absolute superstar in the Premier League. Uh, and then within five years, he pretty much retired. Um, just his his personal life was just... He just basically couldn't stay out of the bars and he couldn't stay away from the uh, attractions of the fairer sex. <laughs> and then, yeah. of, of course, what what do you do when you're, you're sort of, um, when you're an underperforming Premier League player in the 90s where you move to Crystal Palace and you get overpaid for it, don't yeah. you? And he sort of ended... Uh, my last memory of him at Palace was uh, him walking around the pitch with a Yugoslavian flag um, I think he was protesting about NATO or something because, you know, football and politics always goes well. Of course. Uh, and and that, was, that was pretty much the last thing he did. But from 
a player who had such high expectations, it just dwindled out fairly rapidly. Yeah, it did, yeah. I remember him in Big Brother. I saw a clip of it once. Bizarre, absolutely bizarre. Good choices there, Sid. Uh, my pairing is actually a, a North London centre midfield. Um, somebody um, who was mentioned on Twitter by a friend of the show, Liam Matthewman, is uh, Ian Selly of Arsenal. Um, somebody who came through the ranks at Arsenal in a time that, you know, you're talking about the beginning of the 90s. Um, they'd won a couple of titles. Uh, you had a very had that classic defence. But their midfield was very, very strong. Um, and Ian Selly broke through. Um, a decent work, workman-like midfielder. Uh, again, was regarded to be kind of the next big thing in the Arsenal midfield. But injury took its toll on him again, unfortunately. Um, he had a bad leg break. He never quite recovered from it. And then went on to play for, was it Fulham, if I remember rightly? Um, and but never became the player that we thought he would become. Um, I think he's back at the club now. We'll be trying to get him on the podcast actually um, to, to have a chat about his time. But yeah, he was highly highly regarded uh, on the Arsenal front. And then alongside him is someone that always makes me laugh because I think at some point he was actually talked in the same breath as he could be as good as Zidane. That is a quote I've read somewhere. I can't remember the quite source of who said that quote. Um, he played for Tottenham, but Notts County fans will remember him most fondly. <laughs> Uh, he was a picture I put on Twitter yesterday. Yes, Darren Kasky. Um, he's someone that, when I think of this theme, he's kind of the, the standard bearer for someone who, who could have been something better. Um, again, I, I, for him, I, he wasn't so much injury. It just never quite sort of worked out the way he wanted to, to him. But hey, he was regarded so highly by Spurs fan. Also, he was part of uh, anyone who collected the Merlin 1994 sticker album. Uh, I think we talked about this last time with uh, the guys on the pod last season. They had a bit of the back of stickers of rising stars, it was called. Uh, and Darren Kasky uh, was one of those, along with names that um, we might mention a bit later. But he was very much the, the big sticker uh, on those pages. But central midfielder, uh, it just never quite worked out for him. I think Tottenham signed too many flamboyant foreigners in the end uh, under Aussie Diadilis, kind of pushed him out of the squad uh, and never really covered. He was part of, he captained actually that England side that the, the under 18 championship in 1993 uh, that had Robbie Fowler up front and Sol Campbell at the back. He was captain of that side, a team that David Beckham couldn't even get in. But no, after that he played for Reading and then had a big spell in Notts County uh, and then a whole host of lower league clubs. But yeah, so Darren Kasky uh, was my other central midfielder. A couple of other names that were mentioned as well that I kind of shortlisted. Stephen Hughes, again at Arsenal. Jody Morris, Chelsea, who was actually highly much better regarded than uh, in his youth team ranks than the guys like Rio Ferdinand and Frank Lampard. Uh, Graham Hyde at Sheffield Wednesday, and I also had Chris Bart Williams. So let's go to the wings then. Uh, definitely much more than 90s was very much place for the wingers. Who's your two wingers then, uh, Sid? Well, uh, for me, uh, there, there was really only one choice for me. I'm a West Ham fan, as you know, um, and it's got to be Stuart Slater. Um, who, uh, and I can remember this to this day, and I found a clip on YouTube just to check that my memory was right. In 1991, we beat Everton 2-1. I think it was in the FA Cup fifth round. It might even have been the quarterfinal. And uh, Stuart Slater scored a brilliant solo goal. And John Motson said it was the best individual performance he'd seen all season. And Stuart Slater was 20 years old, looked like he had the world at his feet. Um but the problem was, I don't think anyone ever knew what his best position was. He was a winger, he was a striker, he could play off the front man, he, he could pretty much do everything, but there was never one position he kind of nailed down. And I think when everyone played 4-4-2, he needed a bit more of an identity than Stuart had. And then he, he, just like a lot of these players, he had terrible, terrible injuries. And by the time he got to Celtic, um, his best days were already behind him. So... 
I've gone for Stuart Slater. West Ham fans have got incredibly fond memories of him. He always gave his best. He, he and um, he he gave us some brilliant, brilliant goals as well. And he also, at one stage, held the world record, which I can remember from Hammers News reading it. <laughs> Hammers it <was> front, News. <laughs> it was a front page splash. Slater breaks world record, and you thought, "Oh my God, what's what's happened? Is he, um, you know, is he gone to AC Milan?" Uh, and it, he held the world record for keepy-uppies. Oh. I think he did something like 11,000 in a day. That's I, a I'm fact and a half, it, That is I a know. fact and a half. 11,000. You think to yourself, well, you know, how did he go for a wee? I mean, that's <laughs> probably that's probably what, what did, did some of his injuries you? in. How long did that Was that spread across what? How long was that? Well, I think I think he did it in something like uh, I think it was twelve hours. I mean, wow. like, that is a lot. Know, I mean, eleven thousand keepy uppies. I'm, that's I'm sure that's impressive. been broken by some of those kind of tricksters that you see on, on YouTube these days. But eleven thousand is an astronomical number. Yeah, but none of those tricksters scored a winner against Everton today. No. Hey. Yeah, I, when you mentioned he, there was an FA Cup game, I can't remember who it was against, but it stands out in my mind. I remember that who was the Everton one. Actually. It was the it Everton was. one. Yeah. 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 Absolutely, was phenomenal. I mean, wearing that kit that had the yeah the uh, was it the classic Dagenham Windows? Was that the sponsor? No, it was BAC. BAC. I knew it was a window company. Yeah, that's the one. Oh, got a yeah. kit sponsor wrong. That's unlike me. Um, no, good choice. And on the other side. Uh, I've gone for a, a, a slightly lesser known name, uh, and he was a guy who, at the start of the '90s, was being talked about as a, a future England player. Loads of England under twenty-one caps. His name was Ian Olney. Yeah. Um, played at Aston Villa. Um, tall, quick, good finisher. Um, him and David Platt were scoring goals galore under Graham Taylor, and it looked like Ian Olney was going to break into the, you know, the national team. And then it just all went wrong. Taylor left for England. Only didn't really get along with Joe Venglos, uh, Aston Villa. Uh, ended up being shipped out to Oldham, and oh, then he yeah. just slowly disappeared into the abyss. And the last thing I rest, I think he was a financial advisor, but for a, you know a couple of years he was one of England's brightest talents. I love that. Only in the nineties we had footballers. Now you look at them, they're a financial advisor or a postman or something like that. It's, it's they really missed the boat in terms of when the money <laughs> came in later in that decade, didn't they? But uh, yeah, I remember. I remember him more for Oldham actually. Ian Oldham. You know, he said, I remember the Merlin sticker when you said his name. So yeah, that is he, a... he wasn't a good-looking chap either, Ian Oldham. <laughs> I mean, you know, you want to be. He came through in that England under twenty-one team with Lee Sharp. I mean, Lee Sharp looked like a pop star. I mean, Ian Olney, I mean, he was so ugly, he could have, you know, he had to trick or treat over the phone, didn't he? Bless him. <laughs> if Ian is listening, yeah. I apologise. <laughs> Ian, sure... you are a very good looking financial advisor. Yeah, I'm sure there he does go. great tips if you need your tax sorting or something like that. Um, funny you should mention Lee Sharp there, Sid, because my controversial inclusion in my 11 is Mr. Sharp on my left wing. Um, only because I think, although he did have a spell kind of in the early 90s where he was the player for Man United. He never really kicked on after that and became possibly a better player than he could have become. Um, you know, he, you think of the early 90s, that game against uh, Liverpool, was it Arsenal in the League Cup? Arsenal. Yeah, yeah it was against Arsenal, 6-2. Yeah, the 6-2 yes. game wearing that beautiful Maple Leaf style kit. Um, that was, he at that point, he had the world at his feet. Um, him and Rossi, Ryan Giggs was coming through the ranks, but he was there before him. He had the shimmy dance to the corner flag. You know, that became like a, a phenomenon in the Premier League. Um, and then I think the party life got to Lee Sharp a little bit. He never quite got out of that, which, you know, when you do that, don't uh, Alex Ferguson doesn't like it. He didn't take heed. He was shipped out to Leeds and he never really 
became the player that we thought he could have become. Because you think of England's left side and the, you know, we used to think of that in the 90s, especially in the 90s, that it was such a bugbear for so long. Lee Sharp could have owned that left side for the, ma- the majority of his career. Um, especially if Ryan, when, once Ryan Giggs decided to play for Wales, it was that could have been Lee Sharp's to own. And I just think a, man, a manner of demons and not quite living up to it uh, meant he never quite got there. And then on my other side, I toyed with Ben Thornley. And Terry Cook, a couple of Man United's class of 92 and, and just afterwards that didn't quite make the same grade as some of their better known players. Um, but I plucked for Darren Eady. I've kind of shoehorned him on the left wing. Um, he was someone who came through the ranks at Norwich. He's still already, he's still, I think he's still seen as a Norwich legend. Uh, again, injury. It's, um, a lot of these players, it's so disappointing to see that injury curtailed his career. Um, but he was very much th- well thought of. Big player for the England under-21s. I think Norwich were expecting a big transfer for him as well at some point in his career. Went on to Leicester, of course, um, but never quite managed to make it to that next step before injury struck. So, yeah, for I've gone for Darren Eady and Lee Sharp as my wingers. So, I mean, we'll do a quick run through that midfield. Mine was Eady, Caskey, Selly and Sharp. And Sid, your four were? Was uh, Slater, Parkinson, Churchich and Olney. Now, there's some brilliant names there. Before we do our front two, then, let's go to today's interview. And we're talking to a player who isn't included in our... Well, not in my 11. I don't know if he's included in Sid's. We'll see. Uh, as a forward, he was seen in the early 90s as possibly the next best player in the world. He was playing for Ajax before he could even go out on his own at night. Yeah, he was at eight years old. He was seen as a superstar. You may not remember the name, but you may remember the story. And here he is to tell it all, talking to me earlier in the week on Alive and Kicking, his Sonny Pike. Sonny Pike, welcome to Alive and Kicking. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, now, your story is, is an unbelievable one. And uh, I'm not sure everyone who listens to our show will, will, will remember it or so. So let's start at the beginning. I mean, how young were you when people started to realise that you had quite the talent to, to be a footballer? Uh, so when I was 10 years old, I was, I'd made me first. Uh, I mean, I was playing at six, actually through the 1990 World Cup. And then uh, some, like, say, 10 years old, I started getting the attention. And what sort of attention was that? For, just locally or were, you, were football clubs already starting to, to look at you at that stage? No, t- when I was 10, I think I made my first as appearance on London Tonight on TV. Okay. Uh, so it was pretty full, full, full going from then. And before that, we had approach from clubs and this, that and the other. And if I remember, like, you were at Leighton Orient, weren't you? That was one of your early clubs uh, in London. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, was that the first sort of sort of league club that approached you, or was that just a locality that that you ended up there first? Yeah, yeah. I think that was just that uh, there was quite a few clubs, but that was like one of the closest clubs to me. So, uh, yeah. So when I ended up over Leighton Orient, and and then you got the big call, and I mean, the big story at the time, of course, was that Ajax, the you know the biggest club in Holland. Uh, approached you to sign how, and tell us how that happened what, you know, what did you feel like as a family and, and as yourself and, and the story there yeah so that, there was a uh, before I was before I was at Orient actually I was actually playing over uh, over at Wolverhampton I'm from Enfield and uh, there was a Dutch camera crew there for some reason and it come about they seen they see something kind of on the TV over there and uh, they ended up asking me to come over there and then uh yeah, they said I could have gone back there and stayed there if I wanted to. Obviously, when I came back, it just went mental. It was like mad. I was over the TV for two or three years and this, that and the other, and sponsorships. And as you said, the Ajax at the time was pretty much in the 90s, I think 95. They won the European uh, Champions League. It's the Champions League now sort of thing. Uh, yeah, so there was like a Barcelona of today sort of thing. So it was mad. It was crazy. <clears throat> 
And oh, I mean, obviously, it's hard to remember it being that young. I mean, but what did you feel? That it was kind of a whirlwind for you. It must be hard to take in at that age. Yeah, yeah, it was just yeah, pretty much hard to take in. I just tried to concentrate on on actually just the football, you know what I mean, side of it, sort of. Uh, yeah, because especially with all the media type thing, I think a lot of people underestimate how uh, <clears throat> mad that is. That's uh, crazy. And, and for you, I mean, when you're at Ajax, uh, did you sort of how how did that go? Did you manage to, to to rub shoulders with some of some of the big names, or how how did the whole experience sort of for you go down? Oh, it was in, a brilliant, in Holland. brilliant experience. So we turned up there, and there was a main scout there called Tom Pronk. He was an ex Ajax defender. Um, he, he was the main scout there. Uh, we watched the first before I even done anything. The old Ajax stadium. The stadium was there, and the training pitch was in front of it, and. Uh, I remember they had that cage around this training pitch and I was watching all the players. I mean, we had Lippmann, there was uh, Rijkaard, there was De Boer, there was Canu, there was the whole team was literally full. So I was literally watching all of them and that was brilliant. Ended up me talking to Rijkaard after and a few of the players. It was yeah, it's unbelievable, really. Unbelievable. So then what happened next? I mean, you were there as a youngster. Um, how long were you in Ajax? And what was the culmination of it not quite working out in Holland for you? <clears throat> what it was, I went over there for a trial, played a game, we drew one or I scored. <clears throat> uh I could have they said I could have gone back there uh, a few times a month and this sort of made sort of tried to build up a relationship with them type thing. But um I I wasn't really interested. I, I, I wanted to try and sort out my football back at home sort of thing. Uh, so you come home looking to progress. Um what didn't work out for you? I mean, we know seeing what happened, but it didn't quite work for in this country. What? Why was that, do you think? Um, a lot of things, to be honest with you, which I can't go into massively because I'm in the point of a sort of signed with someone to be making a, a, a movie slash documentary. Oh, okay. So uh, it's a bit, a bit of a tough situation. And obviously I've got a book coming out next year as well. Um, but what it was, the majority, the, the, in a nutshell, is the, the things going on around, the, not actually nothing to do with actually what's going on on the pitch. It's all the people around or outside of the uh, the situation because uh, obviously it blew up into quite a media type thing. It's too much around the football, actually not concentrating on the football. That, that's, the, that's the gist of it. Oh, OK. Well, that'd be interesting. Yeah. So, where, so when can we expect the book and the movie to come out? Uh, next year. Okay. Yeah, cool. definitely. The, the book will be next summer, but uh, the the, uh, the the movie slash the, they're, they're talking about it's going to be something like uh, have you seen that Senna documentary? It's a uh, documentary yeah. slash film. So it's like old archives of me and this, that, and the other. Um, it's going to be something like that. So uh, yeah, it should be good. I'm looking forward to that. No, we should look forward to it. It's actually the, the yeah. book we written on the podcast, which is kind of a nostalgia look at the '90s. There's a picture of you and Lee Dixon playing Sabutio. Is that a picture you remember? Oh yeah. Was that yeah, a yeah, yeah, I remember thing that you did? Yeah, no, that was yeah, that was uh, so Sabutio rang us up and uh, wanted me to go down there. That was outside, as uh, at Wembley Stadium. That was when you walk into Wembley at uh, Wembley Arena. Sorry, there's like a little foyer area. They had all uh, little Sabutio uh, fixed pitches set up, and they had people come from all over Europe just to play in these finals. It was crazy. I couldn't believe how people so involved and loved Sabutio, which I used to like it as well to be fair as a kid. But uh, they wasn't really, I mean, they were serious about it. <laughs> really, really serious. Yeah. And so we had to, me and Lee Dixon had to pull the, uh, the, the balls out of the thing and made the, whoever was playing each other. So that's funny. That's good. That's good laugh.
Yeah, it's, it's a great picture. Actually. We'll put it on Twitter once <coughs> this podcast goes out. Um, finally, yeah. before we let you go, I mean, what advice from you and your experience would you give to, to young players today? We're, we're doing a show talking about a lot of the players that we didn't quite make the potential we thought they were in the 90s, but even modern day, what advice would you have as someone who lived through it? I missed a lot of that question, to be honest with you. Cutting up there, to be honest with you. Can, can you say that again? Yeah, no worries. Yeah, I was just mm. saying, what sort of advice would you have for, for people, young footballers today? Obviously, you lived through a lot of it. So what advice would you give yeah. them? I think the, uh, to keep your feet on the ground and just to think, um, obviously concentrate on your football type thing and um, not to get too carried away with uh, the thought of being a footballer. But obviously you've got to concentrate. It's a, it's a fine balance. It's a tough balance because you you want to be best and this, that and the other. But you've got to think of there's so many reasons not to become a footballer. And so just concentrate on your football, concentrate on everything around the game, building up and thinking of a plan B type thing. Um, yeah, but mostly of all, of all, you've got to remember, just enjoy it and, and, and have a, just enjoy yourself, really. Brilliant. Great stuff. Well, thank you yeah. for talking to us, Sonny. Good luck with the book and the movie. We'll look forward to that next year. No problem, mate. Good thank stuff. you. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Hello, mate. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Sonny Pike there. There's a name you may not remember, but some great stories and great memories. They're playing for Ajax at that young age. Absolutely amazing. So let's talk our front two. That's complete our 11 of promising stars from the 90s who didn't quite make the grade as we thought they would. Uh, Sid, kick us off with your first striker, please. Well, easiest one in the world for me. It's got to be the fox in the box, hasn't it? Francis Jeffers. England, perfect um, England record. A perfect England record. You know, um, slightly... Um, Random trivia alert, Wayne Rooney made his debut in the same game as him against Australia. I mean, look how differently those two paths went. Um, So, yeah, Francis Jeffers, the man who was tipped to sort of take over from Thierry Henry eventually at Arsenal, the man that, uh, given that moniker of the fox in the box by Arsene Wenger, £8 million from Everton. Um, Unfortunately, by the time he'd moved to Arsenal, a bit like some of these other players, he'd already been stricken down by injury and never really found his path ever again. He's, I think even today, he's still the England under-21 record goal scorer. Yeah, I think he is. I don't is, think yeah. anyone's think beaten it. Yeah. No, they haven't beaten it, have they? So um, Yeah, um, I could be somewhat correct, but I'm pretty sure it's still Jeffers, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I think, you know, it, it just all went horribly wrong, horribly quickly, and the fact that he was sort of plumbing around in the Australian leagues even a couple of years ago trying to get a game is... is Really quite sad for a guy who, you know, he looks so bright for. Yeah, no, good choice, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going Everton as well for my first striker. Um, the dreadlocked wonder, no, not Trevor Sinclair, I've got to get that mention in, of uh, Danny Kadamateri. I don't even know if that's still the way you pronounce it, but Kadamateri played for Everton. He scored a goal in, I think, was it his debut? I, th- well, one of his yeah. early, I think it was his debut, wasn't it, against in the Merseyside yeah. derby. I mean, come on, that how better platform to start your football career than scoring, if it wasn't his debut, very early on in his, in his Everton career against Liverpool. Um, and right from the off, you thought, OK, you know, Everton have unearthed another one. There's another striking sensation here. He had a cool little look. He was very in at the time with the dreadlocks and stuff. And, and he went out, even though he played a few more games that season, scored a few more goals. But for some reason, it just he just never really kicked on after that. I mean, I think Franny Jeffers came just after him as well. So maybe that curtailed him a little bit. Um, but his early promise, he was a quite quick striker, had great movement, decent finish on him. But he never really quite kicked on from that early promise uh, at Everton. And, and I, 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 really, I really rate him. I think maybe you're just kind of 
90s blurred glasses there but he was someone I really liked and then he went on and played for a lot of clubs in the next decade Um, but for that a little period in the sort of 97-98 loads of people were thinking yes it Danny Katamatari he played for the England under-21s England 18s he was going to be the next big thing sadly it didn't happen for him so yeah that's my first striker so complete your 11 Sid who is your final inductee well, I'm going to give uh, an honourable mention to Kevin Gallen. Uh, he very he very nearly made it, but you'll be delighted to hear that another QPR man did. The man of a thousand hairstyles, the the best stroke worst sideburns of the 90s in the Premier League. It's got to be Danny Dicchio. Oh, Dan. Oh, Danny. What, what are your, you, you, uh, you saw him in his prime. I mean, from my perspective, I remember he was brought in at about 18 years old, wasn't yep. he, to replace Les Ferdinand, which was a very, very hard thing to do. And I think in hindsight, we probably look back and say there was a lot of expectation on a guy when he was far too young. But I remember seeing him at times, and I, he looked like a world beater. He was so big and so strong, and he scored a couple of brilliant goals. And then other other times he just looked utterly anonymous and sometimes, dare I say, even disinterested. I don't know. I mean, you saw more of QPR at that time. It just felt like there was never a, a consistent spell in his career, uh, certainly not a QPR, when you thought, oh, this is, this is a guy that's going places. He, there were flashes of brilliance and then flashes of stuff that wasn't so great. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head slightly there with the Les Ferdinand thing. I think when we sold Les uh, that season, it, there was no one to replace him. You know, we expected big things of both Daniel and, and Kevin Gallen, you mentioned there. As a pairing at youth level, they were phenomenal, especially Kevin. Like his goal-scoring record at youth level, he broke Jimmy Greaves' uh, one-season goal. I think he scored like nearly 60 goals one season in, in the youth teams. And, and big things were expected of Kevin. And as a partnership, Gallen and Dishiko, they were going to be you know, the next big thing. But I think they were just, it was just too early for them. Two young players. You think Kevin made his debut the season before Dishiko, I think. Uh, Old Trafford, it was, yeah, I remember rightly. And he kind of had a season under his belt. Uh, Dishiko, I mean, he was gangly. He he was good in the air. But he had that kind of Nwanku Kanu kind of style where you say disinterested. Sometimes he would go out of games. I think that followed him throughout his career, actually. Because he had a semi-decent scoring record, but he was never really seen as someone who was going to get you a lot, a lot of goals. Um, I mean, the the two things I always remember about him is the first thing that I used to, where I used to sit in Loftus Road when I had a season ticket then, I used to have an old lady who, I haven't seen for many a year now, so she's probably sadly passed on. But she's obsessed of calling him Daniele, because obviously he's half Italian. <laughs> so she used to spend half, like most of the game going, Go on, Daniele! Go on, Daniele! Which was quite in a mock Italian accent, not too dissimilar from Joe Barton's French attempt or Steve McLaren talking Dutch. So that always sticks out as a kid, that always sticked out in my memory. And the other, of course, he left QPR, on, uh, which was one of the early Bosmans as well. To go to Sampdoria, which was at the time, you know, Sampdoria were a team who had Platt, Hullet, Viali in that kind of decade. Not they weren't quite the force they were at that point, but he signed for for Sampdoria from QPR, and I remember us just going, "What? What? How, how has he played? How has he got that move?" So quite ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. Somebody probably could have fulfilled his potential slightly more. I think Kevin Gallen was thought of more. The fact I always have on Kevin Gallen is that if May Knight hadn't bought Andy Cole, their next option apparently was Kevin Gallen. So how different his career could have gone. But from a QPR, excuse me, from a QPR point of view, um, you know, he came back to the club after injury and, he, you know, he was a hero in the mid-2000s, even though 
it was a, a lower level in the, in the second division in the championship eventually he's still seen he's an absolute legend at the club still so in terms of globally yeah Kevin Gallen could have made it again that under 18 team I mentioned earlier he was he spearheaded that alongside Robbie Fowler but Danny Dicchio as well there were two I think if we delayed them a couple of seasons later or possibly had some more established strikers of course we had Mark Haley but that never worked out less said that the better but no I, I, I agree um, is there any other sort of uh, shortlisted strikers you had because there was quite a few of those in the 90s well, I think I've got the guy you're about to say. So, am I like because you said it was ex Everton? So, or well, no, I picked Adam Terry. So that was my ex Everton oh, one. Ah, uh, oh, right. Okay. Well, I would have said Michael Branch. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was another one, wasn't it? They had that lot of strikers, didn't they, in the late nineties, Everton? That well, they they've had them. They've had them in this this decade as well. I think yeah. of James Vaughan. You oh, know, they, 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 there's some something seems to have it happen at Everton when they get these players through, particularly strikers with really promising careers ahead and they just don't quite just don't seem to develop yeah. although Rooney obviously being an exception yeah no okay well my final one um, was somebody seen again the England on 21 side of 93 he was part of that squad uh, he was someone very much looked as going to be an England regular he had apps pace absolute pace to burn this guy did one of the fastest players in his early days that I'd ever seen uh, at Leicester and then Aston Villa and that's Julian Joachim um, I I thought a lot of this guy. I remember his early days at Leicester. People talk a lot about Emil Heskey and how brilliant he was in his early days at Leicester. But Julian was up there as well because he was just so fast, and he had a decent finish on him. Um, the move to Aston Villa, you thought that would be the, the making of him, but it, it kind of swallowed him up. Um, at a time, Villa were a decent, you know, top half pushing uh, sort of top six team, and he never quite made the grade at that. And that after that, he never really recovered from not making it at a, a bigger, so-called bigger club at the time. Um, but for me, around the mid-90s, he, he could have been something. Uh, what were your thoughts on, on Julian Joachim, Sid? Well, I, I remember him scoring a goal of the month once for um, uh, yeah for Leicester, wasn't it? Where he, he basically, I think he was playing Barnsley in the FA Cup. Yes, and he basically I ran the goal, length yeah. of the pitch, beat about three players. And then just when you thought he was going to charge in a, into the penalty area... He just hammered a ball with the outside of his right foot right into the top corner from 25 yards. And it, it was one of the greatest goals you'll ever yeah. see, really. Uh, absolutely unbelievable. I agree. I think one of those players um, that I think if he'd been around now, he would have been perfect in that sort of 4-2-3-1 yeah. formation. Yeah. Just bursting forward with not a lot of defensive responsibility. Because yeah. he wasn't quite... Um, quite the workhorse that wingers no, needed no. to be back in the day. And he wasn't quite prolific enough to be a striker either so a bit like Stuart Slater really he never really found his right position but just bags of ability yeah we, he had pace didn't he so he, he had that case of sometimes being palmed out on the wing which yeah. I don't think he was ever as you say defensively disciplined enough to be a wing I mean even the 90s where it wasn't expected to be as defensive as we like them to be in in this modern era but no he never I think Leicester was pretty prolific but no I think once he re reached a higher level he never quite kicked on uh, a few other names I had sort of kicking around strikers we mentioned Branch um, so Richard Buxton said Andy Booth on Twitter I don't agree with that one unless you're a Huddersfield fan uh, good shout uh, Rich well I'm not sure if he was quite ever really thought he'd be reach the potential that he did had a horrible spell at Tottenham if I remember like, rightly at the sort of uh, um, late no no more 2000s if I think right uh, Mark Nichols at Chelsea he was another youngster at Chelsea who never quite made the grade but they thought highly of him I mentioned James Scrowcroft earlier Matt Janssen later in the decade um, obviously, he had a horrible motorcycle crash that never he never quite recovered from. But I remember when he signed for Blackburn from Carlisle, I believe it was, he was someone who was really meant to go on and do things. Uh, and Rory Allen, he was a name that bounded around Tottenham 
uh, in the late 90s in the England under 21. So there were a, a few names there. And the last one I'm going to mention, because he was a kind of a number 10 role, um, someone that Peter Beardsley called better than Paul Gascoigne, which is, you know, for someone who literally played a lot of football uh, with Paul Gascoigne for England in, in the early 90s, he only ever played a few appearances for Everton before injury again struck him. His name was Billy Kenny. Very obscure one. Um, someone, I think Everton fans would be probably the only ones who remember him. But he was kind of the Ross Barkley of his day, but never quite made the grade due to injury. So that's just run through the 11s then. So I had Richard Wright, uh, Rob Jones, Paul Lake, Stuart Nethercott, Danny Granville, uh, Darren Eady, uh, um, Darren Kasky. I've got a lot of Darrens in my team. Ian Selly, Lee Sharp, Danny Kadamatari and Julian Jarachim. Sid, your team? Richard Wright, John Harley, Chris Bart-Williams, Dean Blackwell, Gary Charles, Ian Olney, Sasha Churchich, Joe Parkinson, Stuart Slater, Francis Jeffers and Danny Dicchio. Wow, what a potential that those two teams had. And, it's, and to be fair to them, they still. if you looked back at their career appearances, there's a lot of appearances under their belt in those two teams, aren't there? I just think they... The expectant level then, they never quite reach for whatever, you know, we have mentioned injury, demons, or just plain potential not fulfilling. They didn't quite make it, did they? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, we're not, we, these guys all had, well, most, apart from the ones that were stricken by injury, still had respectable careers, uh, still, uh, you know, highly respected by their pros and fondly remembered by some of the fans. But sometimes in football, it just doesn't click. You don't get the right manager, the right coach who believes in you. You tried, you know, you're a square peg in a round hole and it, it can just, you can completely lose your momentum. And that's, and sometimes you get young players who are just burdened with too much expectation too soon. Uh, and that's probably the story with some of these guys as well. Yeah, absolutely. Not quite the story of Ray Cash, but that's for another day because if you're going to buy the book, Ralph, where can you get it? And I, I believe you've got some offer on at the moment that you're going to tell our read, uh, readers, listeners, sorry, uh, ahead of Christmas. Yes, I have, mate. So the book is called Cashing In. You can buy it at amazon.co.uk. Uh, and like I say, it's, it's if you love the 90s and you miss fun, imaginative storytelling like Dream Team, this is absolutely a book for you. The reviews have been absolutely amazing. And it shows that like you, like me, like the people out there, there are thousands of listeners who really want to remember that era when football was just a bit more fun yeah. and chaotic. And yeah, absolutely. So we've, we've got an offer out at the moment, which is... If you go to uh, Amazon, if you buy the book, and then if you tweet me um, your cart receipt to at Sid underscore Lambert, then I will reply with a checkout code, which gets you 20% off at classicfootballshirts.co.uk. And I know you love those guys. They've got some superb stuff on there. So if people do want to get their Danny Dickio QPR kit <laughs> or, their, or their Ian Selly 1993 Arsenal kit, that's a, that's a great place to go. So buy the book. Tweet me, uh, and I'll give you a checkout code to get 20% off at Classic Football Shirts. Brilliant. Well, great. And you're right. Those guys are brilliant. And I'm going to do, if you're doing your AK90s bingo, you can scratch off now because I bought a shirt from CFS uh, many moons ago, a 1990 QPR shirt because I couldn't fit into the one that I had when I was a kid. In honour of, yes, I'm going to say it, Roy Wegerly. So, yeah, great offer. So, what's that Twitter account again? It's at Sid underscore Lambert. And it's uh, much like yourselves. I'm just posting loads of fun videos and stats and all sorts from the 90s and sometimes the 80s as well. Brilliant. Yeah, I will put that on our Twitter feed as well for those who uh, just to keep an eye on that. So put that on your Christmas list. Put AK90s on your Christmas list. 
have a good one we may the episode with john devlin talking about kits may drop before christmas or just after so keep an eye out and, and an ear out on twitter for that um if i don't speak to you before then have a great christmas have a 90s christmas thank you so much sid for joining us on the show good luck with the book um we'll see you next time but until then keep it 90s